This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. If you will, now on the inside, I believe it'll be the third page down, you'll find the opening text, Job chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. Job 14, 1 and 2. Job says, Man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. Job talks about the brevity of life. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But he also talks about man being born of woman being full of troubles. All the announcements that were made this morning, there's a lot of people today with troubles. You may be here today with troubles. Some have lost loved ones. Some are fighting disease. Some maybe are having financial difficulties. There's just troubles that come to us in life, and that's how life is. Our life is a series of mountaintops and valleys. It really is from birth until the time we die. And there are times when life is good. We're up on top of the mountain, and the finances are good, and our health is good. We don't have hardly any problems. Everything's going well with us. All of a sudden the bottom falls out and we're down in the valley. We've been through that, haven't we? And we'll go through that again. We'll reach another mountaintop and there'll be seasons of rejoicing and then we're going to have sorrows and problems again. That's the way life is. If you don't have troubles right now, be patient. You will. It just comes to all of us. That's what happens to us. Life is that way. And, and it's well described there in Job. He also says that man is a few days. And that's true. And those of us that are older will tell you that. And you that are younger, uh, I know you believe this, but you can't understand it yet. You will. As your life goes by and, and it's just like a vapor, as James tells us, and you look back on life and it didn't seem that long until you were back in high school and that you were enjoying some, some carefree days of youth. And now you look back on it and you know it should have been just yesterday but you, you see decades have passed. Wait till it becomes 50 years when you look back. And you'll wonder where it went. And these, these, these scriptures like this are going to come, become more and more real to you as the days go by. And you'll find as you get older, and we hope you do, that life's been very short. Man that's born of woman is a few days. Job said, he cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. But when he talks about that, he's talking about the earthly part of our life because there's another sense in which you and I are on a vast journey it's going to take us way out into a vast and unending eternity. It's a long journey. We're just in the very beginning part of it right now. It's got several different stages or phases to it. There is an earthly phase that all of us here today are in right now. And this is a very important stage in that journey because it determines where the journey will ultimately end up. Then there's an intermediate state. What happens when our body dies between our death and the second coming of Jesus? I want to talk to you a lot about that and we'll study about that. And then we'll talk about the third part of this journey 
which is at the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment, heaven and hell, and the beginning of eternity. We'll talk about those things also. So we have a lot to cover then in this journey. And it's true that the earthly part of it is a few days, but it's a very long journey and we'll cover all of it as best we can. When you and I come into this world, we come into this world through a natural birth. We know that we're born and uh, enter into this life. We start out as little ones, as little babies, and that's what these are to represent here for you. We have a, a lot of people who tell us that when we're born, we're sinners. We've inherited sin, and Calvinism would try to teach us that we're born totally depraved, that we can't think one good thought or perform one good act because we've been infected with the original sin of Adam and Eve. They call it original sin. And they believe it's passed down to every member of the human race. And they tell us that even little babies in the womb are so infected that they are totally depraved, even they're in the womb, which is just nonsense. But there are so many people who believe that we inherit sin like this from our forefathers. We do not. The Bible teaches just the opposite. Read with me. Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. For the Bible says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. It's the soul that sinneth that shall die. We do not inherit the sins of our forefathers. Seth did not inherit the sin of Adam and Eve. He just didn't. Nor did Seth pass that down to his posterity and on down so that it infected us. That just didn't happen. The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. We're responsible. In Ezekiel 28 and 15 there, the Bible says of the king of Tyre, Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created, till iniquity was found in thee. This man started off in perfection. Then the Bible says iniquity was found in him, see. And that's the story of all of us. We start off in a state of innocence. Our problem is that on this journey, we don't remain innocent. We all commit sin, and the Bible teaches that, doesn't it? That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that there is none righteous. No, not one. And the problem is that you and I, as we get older, our minds are going to develop. We're going to come to understand the law of God. We're going to know good and evil. We're going to know right and wrong. And when we learn those things, as we mature and we gain that knowledge then, we're going to do just what everybody else in the human race has done with the exception of Christ. We're going to transgress the law of God. And when we break that law, we lose our innocence. We read in 1 John 3 and verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. That's what sin is. It's violating the law. There are little ones here that do not yet know right and wrong. They don't understand good and evil. They do not know the law of God. They're in a state of innocence. But ultimately their little minds will mature, hopefully, and they will understand these things and they'll do just what those of us that are older have done 
They will break the law of God, and when they do, they'll fall from this state of innocence. And they'll, they'll grow up and they'll pass into sin, and this is a very dangerous situation. Paul described this happening to him here in Romans 7 and 9, if you'll read with me. Romans 7 and 9. Paul said, For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now Paul was always alive. As he writes this, he's been alive. He's talking about being alive unto God. He's talking about being spiritually alive and spiritually dead. I was alive without the law once. When he didn't understand the law, when he didn't know right and wrong and good and evil, he was alive unto God once. But he said when the commandment came, when he understood the law, and he violated that law, he transgressed it and sinned, he said, sin revived and I died. See, And every one of us have done that, that have reached any, any age at all. Now there are some whose minds never do develop. They never do understand good and evil, right and wrong. They're wrong, they're childlike. There are mental difficulties and everything. And they stay in that state of innocence, but ultimately most people pass from innocence and fall into sin. If you're in sin this morning, you're in a very dangerous situation because the end of your journey is not going to be good at all. It's just not. It's not going to end well for you. You see, sin has a horrible penalty and it's got to be paid. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, or Romans 6 verse 23, I'm sorry, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When he said the wages of sin is death, he's not talking about physical death here. He's talking about a second death in the lake of fire. That's what sin proposes to give you. That's why it's so dangerous over here on this journey to remain in this state of sin. Now we may all fall into sin, but we don't have to stay there. And if we do and death comes while we're in this situation, then the end result is going to be a second death. And that's not going to be good because that's eternal. Everlasting separation from God in hell fire. And that's why Jesus came into this world to deliver us from that, from that fatal end. To give us the hope of being forgiven of sins, of being right with God, and of course ultimately having life everlasting. He came to pay that debt that we owe. We couldn't afford to pay it. How are you going to pay for your sins? What will you offer God? How will you appease His anger and wrath? There are a lot of people say, well, I'll just reform my life. I'll, I'll start living better. I'll, I'll appease God. I'll just live for Him and I'll be okay. He'll overlook all the other. He will not. Sin, he says, has a penalty and it's death. He has to impose it. And when he imposes that, of course, then you and I have got to pay the penalty. That's why Christ came. He took those sins that we've committed in his own body at Calvary. And there, those sins being laid over on him, God poured out all of his anger on Christ that day instead of on us. And Jesus shed his life blood because the wages of sin is death, and so he gave his life to pay the debt. And we have a sacrifice for that. How many of you have said to yourself, 
I wish I could go back and start over. I'd like to go back and try again. I don't know how many times I've said that. I'd like to have another, another chance, wouldn't you? I think I'd make some different decisions in certain parts of my life than what I did. But the problem is we can't go back to the carefree days of youth and innocence. We can't be born physically again and come into the world in innocence and, and get a fresh start where we learn right and wrong and we get to try it all over again. And that would be nice, but God doesn't offer that opportunity. He does offer us, however, a new start. He offers what he called a new birth, a birth of water and the Spirit that you and I can have, whereby we can have all of the sin that we've ever committed forgiven, and we can start a new life in the kingdom of God. That's what he offers. It's a wonderful, wonderful provision that he's made. In John 3, verse 1 to 7, or one to five here. Christ talked about it to Nicodemus. Nicodemus didn't understand this. He thought the Lord was talking about another physical birth, about going back to his mother's womb and starting over. Let's read the conversation in John 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man could do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Christ talked about having a new birth, a birth of water and the Spirit. I don't know of any scholar, any Bible scholar, who has studied John 3 that will not tell you that water in this fifth verse there is baptism. That's that birth of water and the Spirit. And when we're baptized into Christ, that's the new beginning the Bible talks about. That's the birth of water in the Spirit. And you know, that's why Peter told the Jews on Pentecost Day, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's that birth of water in the Spirit. Many of you here today have taken advantage of what the Lord offers. You have believed in Jesus Christ and repented, confessed your faith in Him, and you've been baptized for the remission of your sins. And those sins now have been forgiven and you've come into the kingdom of God. But that's not the end of the journey. Because in this kingdom there's still a journey to make. There's still a life to be lived. Faithfulness is required on our part. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, if we read the verses preceding this, Christ warned some of the Christians there that some of you are going to be cast into prison. Satan's going to try you. And he tells them in the latter part of verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Now we misunderstand that passage a lot of times. We will quote it and say, Well, we're to be faithful till the day we die. That's true. Faithful till death. But that's not the context here in Revelation 2. You see, the Lord's warning the church here, some of you are going to be killed. 
Satan's going to put you in prison. You're going to have trials. You're going to be, you're going to be tested. Be thou faithful unto death. He means be faithful even to the point of being willing to die for Christ. That's how faithful the Lord expects you and me to be. That if somebody threatens our life asking us to deny him, that we would be killed before we would ever deny faith in Jesus Christ. Be thou faithful unto death. And Christ said, I'll give you the crown of life. There's a life there to be lived, a faithfulness that the Lord expects. But of course, some Christians don't do that. They turn back, they go back to the world. They're drawn away by false doctrine. There are any number of things that can separate us. A good example of that's in Galatians 5. And the churches here in Galatians had a very serious problem. False teachers, we call them Judaizers, had come down out of Judea into those churches and were telling those Christians down there that if they wanted to be justified, they wanted to be saved, they had to be circumcised and then keep Moses' law. And these silly Galatians had believed that lie. Paul called them in chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, he asked, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? He reminds them of the grace. He reminds them of the gospel that he preached to them. He had come into Galatia at the very first preaching a gospel of God's grace. Jesus Christ, death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and his resurrection. And that you could not live a perfect life because if you're going to be justified by law, the problem is you can't ever break that law. You break it once, it condemns you. See, that's the problem with going back to Moses' law. You're obligated, you're a debtor to do it perfectly and never sin. And if you can't do that, it condemns you because there's no mercy under law. All that law can do for you and I is demand that the person that violates the law be punished to the extent of the penalty that's named in that law. And if we leave Christ and we go back to trying to keep Moses' law, we're not going to make it. We're not going to find salvation. We can't be justified by it because we have broken it already, but we will break it again. No one's ever kept it but Christ. And these silly Galatians had gone and have themselves circumcised, thinking that was one way to be saved, and went back to keeping Moses' law, or trying to. Now Paul writes them in Galatians 5, verse 1. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That yoke of bondage is the law. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. There it is. You go back to circumcision and law keeping, you become a debtor obligated to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. And so these Galatians, he didn't say might fall, he said you are fallen. And there are some Christians that that get sidetracked. They go back to the life of sin. They go back to the pleasures of this life. They get caught up in false teaching like these Galatians did and they're led away from, from the Lord that way. There's any number of ways that we can do that. 
And some Christians just aren't faithful, they fall away. Some of you may be in that situation today. We don't know the hearts of anyone. There's, there's a lot of things that are present underneath all of our Sunday clothes sometimes. They don't show up in the clothes. They don't show up in how we look. But they're deep-seated problems within the heart. And they're problems that nobody else knows about. I want you to look at this realm of the fallen here. That's the only, only area in this journey that's got two gates. All of these others had a single gate. This one has a double gate. There's a reason for that. Because not only can we fall away, but while we have life and breath, the Lord offers opportunity to return. He will take us back. He will forgive what we've done. He will give us another chance. That's a wonderful thing. We've got an example of that in Acts chapter 8. Remember Simon the sorcerer there in Samaria. We read in, uh, if we were reading verse 5, that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ. He had great success. There was an old sorcerer there by the name of Simon. He'd been bewitching those people. He'd been doing false uh, miracles, fortune-telling, soothsaying, doing things to con those folks and just get their pocketbooks. He had no power, but they thought he had the great power of God behind him. And they just held him in high regard and esteem. And here comes Philip down now, and Philip's doing real miracles. We read that unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them. Many taken with palsies, that means paralyzed, and that were lame were healed. And then we read in verse 12 of those people in Samaria that when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13, Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. This man was saved. He believed and was baptized. That's that new birth, isn't it? And so he was saved, and yet Peter and John, two apostles, came down to Samaria when they heard that the Samaritans had received the gospel. The apostles had a special ability no one else had. They could lay hands on you and impart miraculous gifts. And that's how miraculous gifts mainly were given in the first century, laying on to these apostles' hands. So they came down to Samaria imparting these gifts to the Samaritans because Philip would be leaving there. There was no written New Testament. And those disciples would need special revelation from the Holy Spirit in their assemblies to teach the church because they didn't have a book like we've got. And so miraculous gifts were imparted for them. We'll read later in the chapter where Philip did leave there and he left behind an infant church of men and women that had been baptized but had no scripture, not any New Testament scripture. And so they needed gifts and so the apostles came down imparting them and the Bible says that Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, that is, these gifts. And he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. You see, he's going back to his old ways. He'd been a con artist. 
He had tricked and deceived the people in Samaria. Now he sees legitimate miracles and the power to do them being imparted by these apostles. If he can just buy that, hey, you can just see dollar signs turning over in his mind. There's a lot of money waiting to be made and a lot of prestige because people will have to come to Simon to get them. See, he's going right back to his old ways. And so Peter rebuked him. Peter told him in verse 20, Simon, your money's going to perish with you. This man's going to perish. Because you've thought the gift of God may be purchased with money. Peter said, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Now read with me verse 22 there in Acts 8. Here was the remedy he gave him. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. There was the way back to repent of the wickedness and ask God for forgiveness. And Simon in verse 24 said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. So he requested prayer of them. And those, uh, you know, hopefully Simon repented of that and came back to the Lord. Some people come back like this. We're always thankful to see a Christian turn back who's in a fallen situation. Let me say something to you about our diagram thus far. Everyone in this room this morning is in one of these four places. Everyone on earth is in one of these four places this morning in our journey. Every one of us. And if Christ delays His coming, you and I will leave earth. We'll, we'll end the earthly part, the earthly phase of this journey by reason of death. And there's nothing we can do about it. In Hebrews 9 and 27, the Bible says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. We have an appointment with death. We're not going to get out of it. We will not tell the Lord that day, Lord, look, I'd like to reschedule that with you. I can't make it today. We do that with doctors, don't we? We do it with all kinds of appointments. Things come up, we just can't make it. But we will make this one. And the problem is we don't know when it's coming. Every time we meet a car on the highway, we're about three feet away from being killed, aren't we? And we meet them at high rates of speed. 75, 80 miles an hour sometimes. We're that close to death. We just don't know when it's coming. And uh, we hope for a longer life, but we don't know. Sometimes we lose little ones. We've had that announced here this morning. That's always sad. And of all the funerals I preach, those are the most difficult to preach. Because you hate to preach the funeral of a baby. And you just almost struggle for what to say. There's no grief like it, I'm sure, in the hearts of parents. I've never had that. I don't want that. got to be horrible. Death will overtake us here. 
we have that appointment. But what we've got to understand today is that's not the end of our journey. The journey goes on because we keep living after the death of the body. What happens to us? Well, that's a great question. Everybody's pondered that, haven't they? We've got this intermediate part of this journey now after the death of our body if Christ delays. What happens when we die? Are we unconscious? Some people think so. That we're just like Rover, we're dead all over, just like you'd bury a pet. And that we don't know anything. And there are scriptures in the Bible that do say the dead know not anything, but it's talking about the body. It's not talking about the inner man. Because that part of us is very much alive. So the body is not all we are. We'll talk about that also. We are a three-part being. I'll take you through those three parts during this study, and we'll talk about what happens to each one of the three when death comes. We don't know a lot about what happens after death, but the Lord told a story in Luke 16 that does give us some idea. I like to think of it as pulling the curtain back a little bit to give us a glimpse into the life beyond this one. And I'm reminded a lot of times of the old movie, The Wizard of Oz. Do you remember the little dog when he ran to the curtain where the wizard was and he grabbed the curtain and pulled it back? And he exposed the old wizard, didn't he? The con man. There he was working his levers and what have you and controlling Oz. Making everybody think this great entity was doing that and all the time it was him with, with machinery. But that curtain was pulled back. And Dorothy and the lion and the scarecrow and the tin man all got a look at him. And they understood they'd been conned. God's not conning us, but he pulls a curtain back to give us a glimpse into what happens after this life. Let's look at Luke 16. We'll not read all of it, but some of it. Luke 16, verse 19 to 22. Christ is telling this story. He said, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Let's stop right there. The Lord tells us of two men. And when you read this story, one of the first questions that you have is, is this story true? Is it? Did this literally happen? Was there a certain rich man? <clears throat> was there a beggar named Lazarus? Did they experience in their life what happened here? And did they experience death and what happened after death? That, that is ultimately also described. Or is this just a parable? I don't know how many times I've been asked this by people. Pat, is this literally true? Did this literally happen? Or is Christ giving a parable? There are many people who say it's a parable. Others say, no, it's a true story. Now, if it's a true story, of course, it happened. There were literally two men 
that experienced these things in this life and then died and experienced the things that are described. But it's no less true if it's a parable. And I've shown you this many times. You know, when the Lord used parables, and He used them a lot, He never told whoppers. He never told lies in His parables. They were always true to life. The word parable means placing beside. Placing beside. Christ would tell a story in which He would take the characters and events and details in that story and then place them beside truths that He wished to teach. It was a great way to teach by comparison. The characters would represent something else over here. The details and events would represent something over here. And he could explain and teach very clearly that way for those who really wanted it. But when the Lord used parables, he never, he never told lies. He never, he never took untrue events and used them to illustrate his truth. And I'll give you an example just using simple parables the Lord gave about the kingdom. He taught a lot about the kingdom in parables. When he did, they were true to life. He might say the kingdom is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field. And while men slept, an enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. That happened. He'd say the kingdom is likened to a net let down into the sea and gathered of fishes. That happened all the time. The kingdom is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one of great price went and sold all that he possessed and bought it. The kingdom is likened to leaven, which a woman hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. And they understood that because that happened all the time as the housewives of Palestine baked bread. These were true to life. And so this story here that we've read, if it's true to life, of course, if it historically happened, it's true. But if it is a parable, it's still true. Because the Lord is teaching us what happens after, immediately after, that is, death. What did happen? Well, he said in verse 22 that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. We'll talk about that later. He said the rich man also died and was buried. And I want you to keep that in mind. This man's buried. And anything he experienced then after his death, he's out of his body. Remember that. The rich man died and was buried. Now verse 23 if you read with me. The Bible says, And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Verse 23, if you'll look at that again. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. What do you think of when you read the word hell in the Bible? What thought do you have? Say, you say, well, Pat, I, 
I think of a lake of fire. Well, generally we do, don't we? In hell, he lift up his eyes and we just assume, well, maybe the man went to hell right there. But you see, the problem is in our King James, and I'm using the King James translation this morning, the translators did us a disservice because there are three different Greek words. Our New Testament was written in Greek. And there are three different Greek words that are translated in the King James with our English word hell, just one word. You got three different words and they all refer to a different place, yet the translators just translated them with one word, hell. And only one of those words refers to the lake of fire. The other two words don't. That's what's confusing about it. And we've got to distinguish between the three different words. Usually you can do that with the context. You don't need a Greek lexicon. You know, I don't think the Bible's a book where you've got to have dictionaries and things to get by in it, but those dictionaries can be helpful sometimes. And so if you'll look at the second page in your notes, the second sheet, I put us in a word study on these three words. I'm going to do this right quickly with you. Then we'll close out and start part two next Sunday. Those three Greek words there that are translated hell, there they are. Tartaru, Gehenna, Hades. Over on the left, here's Tartaru. If you've got a Strong's Concordance and Look the words up in the back by the numbers, it's 50-20. This word's found one time in your New Testament, that's it, one time. It's used in 2 Peter 2 and 4, that's it, Tartaru. When you look the lexicons up about it, the definition is this, it's the deepest pit or abyss in Hades. If you'll think then, look at your lower circle there, look at the middle circle on your diagram, and then look at the bottom part, Tartaru. That whole circle's Hades. The deepest part, Tartaru. And now over there on the left, read with me 2 Peter 2.4. The Bible says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. That word hell there is Tartaru. The only time it's in the New Testament cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. The translators would have done us a great service if they'd have just put the verse this way. If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartaru. You see, we'd know what that word is, but they just translated it hell. And so when you read it, you think, well, these angels went to hell. They went to the lake of fire. They didn't. This is not the word for the lake of fire. And this is not the word in Luke 23, or excuse me, Luke 16, 23, where it says of the rich man, and in hell he lift up his eyes. That's not Tartaru. And so I drew you a dotted line from heaven down to Tartaru. You'll see it there. And this Tartaru, the deepest place in Hades, if you wonder what happened to the angels that were kicked out of heaven, here they are. This is the holding place for them. God sent them to the deepest pit in Hades. The Bible says they're reserved there in chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. They're headed over here to the lake of fire. 
Tartaru is just the holding place. That lake of fire is the second word, Gehenna, there in the middle. That word's found 12 times in your New Testament. In the King James, it's translated hell nine times and hell fire three times. And I put your strong words there, 1067. This is the final place of punishment, the lake of fire right here. The word's Gehenna. And there, the, the scripture that uses it, one of them, there's 12 of them. One of them's Matthew 10, 28. I put it there for you. Here it is. Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That word hell there is Gehenna. And when a person goes to the lake of fire, they go their soul and body. Now is the rich man in his body? No, his body's buried, see. Just the context tells us in Luke 16, 23, he didn't go to the lake of fire. That's not the word there. Because if it were, he would have gone there soul and body, as you'll see over on the right bottom. There's Gehenna. That's the word in Matthew 10, but it's not the word in Luke 16, 23. Now look, we've looked at two of these three words. One of them is Tartaru. There in the center circle, the deepest pit in Hades. Gehenna, the lake of fire. Neither one of those words are found in Luke 16, 23. What is? The third word on the right, Hades. There it is. And that word's found 11 times in your New Testament. And in the King James, it's translated hell 10 times, unfortunately. It's translated grave one time in 1 Corinthians 15, and that sure is a bad mistranslation. Eleven times you find this word Hades. That's the word in Luke 16, 23. Read the verse. In hell, Hades, he lift up his eyes, being in torments. He was not in Tartaru. He was not in Gehenna. He was in Hades. And you see, if the King James translators, and there were 47 of them, when it was originally translated in 1611, they could have come to 2 Peter 2 and 4 and said, God spared not the angels of sin, but cast them down to Tartaru. We would have understood that. He could have come to Matthew 10, 28. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that's able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. We would have understood that word different. He could have come to Luke 16, 23 and said, The rich man died and was buried, and in Hades he lift up his eyes, being in torments. That's where the man went, Hades. And so, see, that's not so confusing. He didn't go to the lake of fire. He didn't even go to the deepest pit here in Hades. He went to this, uh, just this realm of, of torment there in Hades. And if you'll look at that middle circle now on your chart, you'll see that Hades is that whole circle. It has a place of comfort called Abraham's bosom. That's where the beggar went. It has a place of torment. That's where the rich man went. It has a, a place where the wicked angels are held. That the, that's the deepest pit in it. That's Tartaru. And these regions are separated from each other by a great gulf, an expanse, as we'll read later. We've already read, actually, and it can't be crossed by either one on either side. 
No one crosses it. It's a, a deep chaos, a deep, uh, just a deep canyon, if you will. You might think of the Grand Canyon, except far more grand. And no one crosses this, this great gulf. The word gulf just means expanse. Don't let that word fool you. When you think of the Gulf of Mexico, it's, a, it's an expanse of water between Florida and Cuba. It can be an expanse of anything, but gulf just means an expanse. And so that's what we have. So we're going to stop right there. This man's on his journey, and we're not through talking about what happens. I will tell you this, and we'll study this out next week. Jesus, when he died, went to this place. Everyone's soul goes here. And we hear people saying, well, so-and-so died, and he's playing golf now up there in heaven. No, he's not. Well, he's up in heaven fishing. No, he's not fishing. No one goes to heaven till the Lord comes. But we've got a soul that's got to go somewhere at the death of the body, and this is where it goes. Hades is not a bad place. Depends on where you go there. Because it's got a place of comfort that Jesus called Abraham's bosom, and it's got a place of torment. And that's determined right now by from what point here in our earthly journey we leave this earth. Or if Christ comes, what part he finds us in. We're making that decision right now. So we take up this journey then next Sunday and finish it on out to eternity. And we got some more word studies to do and our different subjects and things like that. But I think it'll be interesting to us. I hate to quit right here. I'd like to just keep talking, but you wouldn't like that. Roast would burn, and I'd, I wouldn't be in, held in high regard, let's put it that way. So we'll, we'll cut off right here. Keep these charts if you can. If you want to stick them in the pouch in front of you, on the chair in front of you, that's fine. You can take them home. I don't care. I just may not have one next week because I printed uh, more than 60 of these and there's eight pages in it and it's a lot of printing and stapling. So I want you to have the material. So you do with it as you want, but bring it back next Sunday if you take it. And if you don't, I may have a few left, okay? We'll have the invitation now if there's someone in need of the Lord and, and you want to come make those needs known to us. We'll do everything we can to assist you. If you need to be baptized today, and we had one baptized last week, we're so thankful for Denise. And uh, some up, somebody else may need to do that as well. We, we give you that privilege, that opportunity today to have that new start the Lord offers. And if you're uh, here as a Christian in need of prayer, and it doesn't have to be sin, just burdens, problems, anything, and you just need the prayers of those about you, we'll do that too. We'll have the first and last verse of the song selected and ask you to come if you need the Lord while we rise and sing. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 